week, we dive into the unexplored world of ocean viruses. We learned in this study, for example, that less than 1% of these viruses did we even know anything about. And economists don't have a perfect measure of social class. Here's why they need one. I think it would allow us to forecast what's going on in the world more effectively. I think it would allow us to understand the challenges we face socially. Plus, a collection of studies traces the journey of humans out of Africa. This is The Nature Podcast for September the 22nd, 2016. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Adam Levy. First up this week, immerse yourself, as we have, in Noah Baker's infectious enthusiasm for oceans. Imagine you're at a beach, having a nice, relaxing swim. Then suddenly, a big wave crashes over you and you swallow a mouthful of seawater. First thought, gross, tastes foul. But there's a lot more in that mouthful than you might think. There's about 50 million viruses per, per mouthful of seawater. That's Matt Sullivan from Ohio State University. Luckily for you, that viral mouthful isn't going to land you in a doctor's office. These viruses would be pretty specific for, for marine microbes. Even though the oceans play host to a gigantic number of viruses, scientists don't actually know very much about them. The virus world's been incredibly underexplored. We learned in this study, for example, that less than 1% of these viruses did we even know anything about. The study he's referring to was published in Nature this week, and it makes an attempt to get a global picture of the ocean's viral diversity. An important step, as these tiny viruses could be having a huge impact on global ocean processes. Here's Simon Rue, also from Ohio State, and the lead author on the study. It was um, trying to piece back together a puzzle that has been um, pretty much on our desk and on uh, everyone's desk in the field for 15 years, in that we, we have seen these viruses and this number of viruses for 30 years now, and we started to have small bits and pieces of sequences of, of genomes for these viruses for more than 15 years now. And still, uh, we didn't have enough data and enough good quality data to kind of be able to tell which viruses was which and classify them and make a first kind of roadmap of which viruses were out there. The data they worked with came from two global ocean surveys, a feat which is less common than you might think. Here's Matt again. There's been four oceanographic cruises that sailed around the world one was Darwin's Challenger in the 1870s. One was Craig Venter's Global Ocean Survey. And then the two that we've published here. And this is the first time that there was global virus samples available. After years of collections, the viral samples were isolated, DNA fragments were extracted, amplified and sequenced, and then sent to labs like Simon's, where he could begin reconstructing a mammoth viral puzzle. That's where... Um Pretty much the fun begins of trying to make sense of everything we could sequence. We could finally have enough pieces to start to get these puzzles back. And, and when you kind of reconstruct these puzzles, you get access to a whole new level of information because you can tell individual viruses from one another. They could start organizing ocean viruses in a comprehensive way. Finally here, we're able to classify them in big groups. So we get from tens of thousands of viruses to... 800 and something groups, and then from these 800, we're able to turn down to 38 of these groups that are very much the globally abundant viruses. And going from this almost um, impossible to take on mass of viruses to, okay, these are the 38 groups that I really want to care about first. Uh, it doesn't mean that the other are not interesting, but these are the 38 that we want to go after first and, and foremost. And that was really like, I was super happy with this. <laughs> 
Not only could they classify and organise the viruses, they could look more deeply into their DNA and work out which microbes they were infecting. Most of our 38 very important and globally abundant viruses were associated with uh, what we know are the dominant and most abundant microbes in the ocean. So it it's, makes total sense for us that these viruses are the most uh, abundant and widespread. Scientists have predicted that around one in three microbes in the ocean are infected by viruses at any given time. And that could have significant impacts. Here's Matt again. The microbes in the oceans are responsible for about half the oxygen that you breathe. Those same microbes are also helping draw down carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And that also is about half of the atmospheric carbon dioxide gets drawn down. So if a virus is, is infecting you know, one out of three of these cells and changing, for example, the way a photosynthetic cell manipulates carbon, then that can impact the ocean's abilities to um, adjust these greenhouse gases for us. And it's not just CO2. Another neat thing that, that Simon found in this study was viruses actually encode uh, genes that manipulate nitrogen and sulfur cycling, which can have key impacts in, in greenhouse gas exchange and climate change as well. So we're just beginning to get a hint of the kinds of things viruses can do. And the next stage really is to work with appropriate scientists to be able to quantify the way that those viruses change those processes. Understanding these viral interactions could shed light on global processes like carbon sequestration and nutrient cycling. But some believe it could also provide an opportunity to control these cycles too. There are modelers and theorists who are working on trying to begin to incorporate virus and virus impacts like those described in this paper into their models. And the goal of that kind of modeling effort is to build towards uh, predictive approaches that could help us manage um, environments that are being perhaps engineered uh, to help us as humans in society. Matt Sullivan and Simon Rue, both from Ohio State University, speaking with Noah Baker. If one mouthful of marine viruses isn't enough for you, head over to nature.com forward slash nature to find their paper packed full of juicy details. Coming up in the news, what are these researchers so excited about? (laughs) One clue, they're underwater. Stay tuned to find out more. First... Nature is running a package of articles this week on diversity and inequality. Kerry has been examining how scientists have typically measured things like this, starting with one aspect that's always been difficult to measure, social class. In the 1880s, a businessman and all-around curious gent called Charles Booth undertook a giant survey of London's residents. Over a period of years, he walked the streets, often accompanied by local policemen, and took colourful notes about what he saw. Here's one about an area in North London called Islington. I asked some modern-day Londoners to bring them to life. Another feature of life in Islington are the droves of animals on their way to the Metropolitan Cattle Market. A flock of sheep got loose into Rockstraw's drapery shop. One went in, the rest followed. Booth was interested in every aspect of the lives of Londoners. Work, pay, family life, crime, you name it, he probably asked his police tour guides about it. They are a rough lot, all Abbott's men. Abbott's was a coal merchant in the east of town. One day at work, two days drink is about their character. But above all, Booth was putting together a new way of categorising people into classes. 
He produced coloured maps showing how his seven classes were distributed across town. The highest class, coloured yellow, he described as the servant-keeping class, living in leafy, bright areas of London. Okay, right, you ready? Yeah. Gardens, houses, all of the modern types of architecture, no poverty anywhere and working class only in the muses. There were, of course, other areas dominated by the lowest classes, areas coloured dark blue and black. Booth called some of the occupants of this low class vicious and semi-criminal. Like in this street in Whitechapel, in the east end of London. Three stabbing cases and one murder from this street in the last three months. Common lodging houses for both sexes, where they do not ask for your marriage certificate. One very fat lady in the window. She is now too fat to get out of that door. Booth was devising one of the first catalogues of class. Plenty of other schemes have followed his. Here's economist Mike Savage of the London School of Economics. So the early class maps were also kind of moral maps. As the 20th century wore on, sociologists recognised this was very moralising and they tried to find a more objective way of measuring class. And British researchers led, led the way, particularly a very eminent Oxford sociologist called John Goldthorpe, and he argued that the best way to measure class was in terms of your occupation and the way that linked into your employment status. Goldthorpe's model, published in 1980, distinguished between working for a wage, say as a labourer, or being salaried, like a doctor might be. So in a way he was saying that the big divide in class terms was between people on a salary, who had more security, had better job conditions, and people who were paid lower level wages. And this way of thinking uh, led to a very effective and very powerful way of measuring people according to the particular occupations they did. Which works well up to a point. And that point is today's working West, where manufacturing jobs are less and less common and someone can be salaried for doing a menial job or a professional one. So social scientists are thinking again about class, trying to broaden the definition to include things they call cultural and social capital. This is the idea that social networks and cultural activities like going to the theatre or museums can also dictate and determine class. Savage explains. So if we have friends in high places, if we know influential people, that can have spillover effects and that can give us advantages in, say, you know, finding out about good jobs or giving us better ideas for uh, saving money or whatever. But the irony is, among sociologists who think about class, there's a class divide. In some respects, the occupational approaches do have certain values and they have been shown to be very powerful for explaining social mobility and also certain aspects of people's work lives. But if you're interested in class in the bigger picture, which is the way class affects politics, the way we think about class and the way we understand class in society at large, I think there's a lot more to be gained by using notions of capital. But hopefully we can find a way of moving on and uh, reconciling our differences. And what if the differences could be ironed out? I think it would, it would uh, allow us to forecast what's going on in the world more effectively. I think it would allow us to understand the challenges we face socially with the growth of economic inequality. And will also encourage activists, trade unions, people who are concerned to address inequality to understand better how they can try and gather more popular support to um, create more egalitarian cultures. So if researchers could understand class better, they might be better placed to help societies prepare for social change or predict how people will respond to political events, like the recent Brexit vote on whether the UK should leave the EU. 
they might also be able to understand the causes of inequality in the first place. Let's go back to Charles Booth for a minute now, because he was doing his work at the time of the greatest inequality the UK has ever seen. Historical data about social status suggests that inequality peaked in around 1870, only a decade before Booth started patrolling London. Here's a note from the centre of town near Marble Arch. A very mixed district, great wealth and great poverty side by side. The dwellers in Brinston Square, a yellow area, could almost throw a stone into the Ho-Ray Street where the inhabitants are wretched poor. Inequality across the globe is on the rise again today. It's been increasing for the last 30 years. This upswing could be a modern version of the Industrial Revolution, says historian and economist Branko Milanovic. That upswing is driven by the technological change and globalisation. Technological change because it enabled new innovations and new producers to actually reap enormous rents, like, for example, Apple is doing right now. Then openness or globalisation, which has, of course, enabled them further to create chains of production where they would use cheap labour from Asia, which, of course, in the past past they couldn't do that before globalisation. Of course, Milanovic is not recommending bringing all of this to a halt just to make the world more equal. But there are ways he thinks that nations could do more to even things out. There we can do much more, be it through taxation, to spread capital ownership down the income pyramid and make it more accessible to the middle class or to poorer people. And finally, education, in making it also much more accessible than it is now. Looking back at history also suggests that inequality won't rise forever. In the meantime, with an eye on the politics of today, it pays to be aware of differences in capital and class. Mike Savage again. If you look at the demographics of who's supporting Trump and who's supporting Clinton, people who are well-educated tend towards Clinton. People who are less well-educated, who haven't got cultural capital, who feel more deprived, who are less secure economically, are more attracted to Trump's kind of anti-establishment method, message. His success in getting the nomination and doing as well as he has done shows the power of this kind of quite polarised class structure which we now face. That was Mike Savage and before him Branko Milanovic. Mike's comment piece, all about social class, and Branko's, all about the historic trends in inequality, are available at nature.com slash nature. If you want to find out more about Charles Booth and read copies of his handwritten notebooks, you'll love the Charles Booth archive, free to browse at booth.lse.ac.uk. That's Booth, spelt B-O-O-T-H. Now it's time for the research highlights, read this week by Noah Baker. Researchers have demonstrated quantum teleportation using regular fibre-optic links. To teleport a quantum state, physicists take two particles, usually photons, and put them in different places. Then they create a shared quantum state. Changing one now affects the properties of the other. This has been done before with visible light photons, but now scientists have used infrared photons, which are much more useful as they work with existing comms networks. Two teams, one in China and one in Canada, each used infrared photons to transfer data between devices several kilometres apart. Handy for linking together all those future quantum computers. Nature Photonics has the paper. The common ancestor of rattlesnakes possessed a kind of venom superpower. Modern rattlesnakes have venom that either poisons the blood and muscle or acts on the nervous system. But millions of years ago, their common ancestors may have been able to do it all. Each lineage has therefore lost venom genes. That's the suggestion of a genetic study of closely related rattlesnake species, which have held on to different venoms. 
the team suggest that they kept or lost their weapons as and when their prey species became resistant to particular toxins. The results are in current biology. Next up, Adam digests four new studies on how humans came to conquer the world. From our origins in Africa, modern humans have spread to every corner of the globe. But what did this migration look like? Did our ancestors leave in lots of waves? Or was there only one exodus? Collecting genetic data from modern people around the world can help paint a picture of human history. And the fossil record can shed more light on these findings. For example, teeth found recently in China pointed to humans leaving Africa tens of thousands of years before previously thought. But even with these techniques, there are still big gaps in the map of our ancestors' migration. And if you don't have the right pieces, you'll never recover the puzzle. Geneticist Josh Akey there. Without enough pieces of the puzzle, studies can end up painting crude pictures of how humans journeyed out of Africa, simply drawing vague arrows on maps. That's according to Axel Timmerman, a researcher from the University of Hawaii. I read many uh, scientific uh, articles about anthropology, about human migration, and many of them were very hand-waving. And there was never anything really quantitative. Luckily for Axel, four studies this week go some way to clearing up the history of human migration. One study, Axel's own, takes a look at how the landscape shaped our ancestors' journeys. The others take a closer look at the genomes of modern humans. Let's see what the genomes have to say first. Sequencing the genomes of diverse peoples around the world can help build up a picture of our family tree. This family tree can help us understand whether Homo sapiens left Africa in a single event or several stages. For lots of big genome sequencing projects to date, though, Properly sampling the diversity of modern humans hasn't been easy. Some groups, notably Europeans, have been oversampled at the expense of others. Now, three new studies go some way to filling in the blanks. They sequence genomes from a wide range of people, including several indigenous populations. Here's Josh Akey again, who's co-authored a news and views on this trio of studies. One of the important contributions is that they more comprehensively sample human genetic variation than in previous studies. There's been an overrepresentation of particularly European individuals. And to really understand human history, it's important to comprehensively sample many populations from all over the world. And, you know, understanding human history is really like putting pieces to a puzzle together. With these three pieces added to the puzzle, are we getting any closer to knowing what the picture is? These studies largely agree that all non-African individuals can trace their ancestry to a single wave of dispersal out of Africa. So the genomes of present humans are pointing towards a single migration from Africa. But this is only one line of evidence. Axel Timmerman, who we heard from earlier, is a climate scientist. For Axel... Understanding what the climate looked like over past millennia is crucial to unpicking how humans spread from Africa to the rest of the world. So far, we have only very, very limited paleo uh, climate records that indicate uh, what the climate system looked like in these critical 
bottleneck uh, regions. Bottleneck regions like the deserts of northern Africa would have blocked migration at times when temperatures were too hot. Axel wanted to see how knowledge of the Earth's climate history could help us understand these bottlenecks and so piece together our ancestors' journeys. So he turned to simulations. So our uh, new study presents essentially one of the first computer simulations of climate and human migration covering the past 125,000 years. And what we find is that the Homo sapiens leave Africa around 120 to 100,000 years ago and that uh, the migration happened in waves um, so that the African exodus, if you like, following essentially these green vegetated uh, corridors driven by essentially astronomical uh, factors. So Earth's axis wobble with a periodicity of 20,000 years becomes in some way the conductor of the human migration out of Africa. So the repetitive wobble in the Earth's axis causes variations in the climate that leads to repetitive waves of migration of humans out of Africa. But doesn't this contradict the findings of the three genomic studies that pointed to a single migration? Back to Josh Akey. So I, I don't think that's actually contradictory. So in genetics, what will stand out is how many migrations contributed to present-day ancestry, whereas I think in their study, um, they're just looking at, for evidence of, of human migrations. So there were multiple out-of-Africa dispersals, but there was one main one that contributed to present-day ancestry. That leaves us with a more nuanced picture. Together, then, these papers suggest that modern humans migrated out of Africa multiple times, but most of the genetic information in non-Africans originates from a single out-of-Africa migration. To Josh, the subtly different answers these studies provide confirms that this puzzle needs to be pieced together using multiple disciplines. As a geneticist, sometimes you don't want to think about the limitations of genetics, but there are certain questions that, um, that are difficult to resolve fully with genetics. And I really think that the modeling work done in that paper and explicitly incorporating sort of environmental and uh, climate data is going to be profoundly helpful in understanding human history. This is an incredibly sort of complicated and nuanced question, and I think that all of those disciplines have something to contribute to our understanding of our past. That was Josh Akey, who's at the University of Washington in Seattle. The three genomic studies plus Josh's news and views are available at nature.com forward slash nature. You also heard from Axel Timmerman, whose climate study and a news and views piece on it are available at the same address. Now it's time for the news chat, and we promised to explain this sound. (laughs) On the line with some more detail is underwater archaeologist Brendan Foley from the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. Brendan, you're one of the people in this clip. Where were you, first of all? Sure. Well, of course, our voices are a little bit squeaky because we're 51 metres deep and we're breathing uh, a trimix breathing gas, so helium, oxygen and nitrogen. So the helium gives us somewhat squeaky voices. And we were on the Antikythera shipwreck, which sank about 65 BC on the coast of this small Greek remote island called Antikythera. Uh, The ship hit the cliff uh, above water, of course, and then sank down the, the steep slope to 
come to rest at about 51 meters depth. My dive buddy is Gemma Smith, who's a very enthusiastic person. <laughs> so she and I swam over when the other dive team notified us that they'd found something very interesting. Uh, as we swam over to the excavation trench, it became apparent that there was, in effect, an entire human skeleton sitting in the sediments. So our reaction was disbelief, excitement, scientific joy, I suppose is how you would describe it. There's, a, there's an American sportscaster who, whose tagline used to be, Whoa, doctor! And so that's what came out of my mouth. And, and, uh, maybe not the most scientific exclamation ever, but we were very excited. So the fun thing about this discovery was that it happened in the first minutes of the first dive on the first day of, of this season. So just before we get to the remains that you found, can you give us a tiny bit of context? This is, um, this is an unusual ship to have found, even though ships wrecked all the time uh, in sort of recent and ancient human history. I mean, what's the context for this and how much have people explored it before? Well, we like to think about shipwrecks sort of as car accidents. There's car accidents all the time. There's shipwrecks all the time, but there are no tow trucks to drag away the wreckage. So the seafloor is littered, especially in a place like Greece with such a long seafaring history, littered with shipwrecks. But not all shipwrecks are created equally. And this particular shipwreck is the most extraordinary, uh, perhaps one of the, the, the number one or number two most important and interesting shipwreck ever discovered. So it was full of treasure. It had 36 life-size or colossal marble statues, six or eight or ten life-size bronze sculptures, the famous Antikythera mechanism, of course, billed as the world's first computer, and then an incredible assortment of luxury goods, some of which we're finding as we continue the excavation. Did you have a suspicion you might find any human remains? Any more human remains, I should say, because we have there have been bones found before. We, archaeologists, have looked at probably a thousand shipwrecks from the ancient world, from the ancient Mediterranean, and only a very small handful, two or three, have produced any human remains at all. We had lined up an expert in ancient human DNA studies, Hannes Schroeder, from the Natural History Museum of Denmark in Copenhagen. And as soon as the bones emerged from the sediment, uh, as soon as we did our decompression and got back on shore, I emailed Hannes and said, we made the discovery. We found the bones, and they look largely intact. How soon can you get to the island to look at these bones with us? And in the event, he was able to be there within about four days. It's hard to get DNA out of old bones because of the conditions of preservation in a lot of cases, right? So is that something you're hoping to do? Yes, exactly right, exactly right. This is the first time that a human skeleton has, or skeletal remains have been recovered from an ancient shipwreck since the invention of DNA studies. So all the previous human remains, all three or four or five examples, were in the 1960s, 1970s. So we're very excited about the possibilities of, of teasing out uh, unprecedented information from, from these remains. We're hoping to get the, uh, the permission from the Greek Ministry of Culture and Sports very, very quickly so that we can do a full suite of ancient DNA analyses on these remains. And what can you discern about the individual without looking at the DNA uh, at all? The, the first impressions, and they're rough impressions, are based on the, the size, the, how robust the bones are, particularly the leg bones, the femurs. Uh, and they look, they look pretty big. Now, 
that makes us think that possibly it's a it's a male. But we've got a 50-50 chance there, don't we? Looking at the skull and the, the teeth that are that are still in the upper jaw, there's not much wear on the teeth. And again, it's a very rough guide, but that makes us think that it's a, a relatively young individual. And what more might the DNA tell you that you can't tell from the bones? Well, this is the exciting thing. It, it, it should give us, depending on how much of the genome we can sequence, it should give us hair color, eye color, ethnicity, uh, where this person lived, where his ancestors lived, a general idea of who this person was, where he was sailing from. Or at least where he was f- from uh Historically, because I suppose people moved around a lot, right? He might not have been, he might have been kind of a crew member or something. That's true. On the other hand, this could be the person who owned the Antikythera mechanism. There's really no way to prove it, but it's, it's a fun thing to think about. Thank you to Brendan Foley for joining us for the news. Find the full story by reporter Joe Marchant at nature.com slash news. We'll be back next week with more of the best stories from science. In the meantime, we've added to the science fiction special from a couple of weeks back with an awesome motion comic that you can find on our YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash nature video channel. That should please listener Sam Van Rood, who wrote to us to say he would love some more science fiction. Thanks also to Corey Windorf, who's almost finished his PhD in inorganic chemistry and listens to keep up with science going on elsewhere. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Adam Levy. Adam Levy.